Internet's one time for your mind. You tuned in to Step Off Radio, the official podcast of Step Off Magazine. I'm joined once again by my co-host. Yeah, you got me right here, Jose Cortez, the red ghosts haunting uh, Southern California. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Internet's, we got a credible guest in our presence today. We got the one and only Lucas Cruz of the Chicano Park Steering Committee and the Chicano Park Museum. What's up, brother? How you doing? Busy. Good, busy, you know, right now we're prepping up for Chicano Park Day, so it's just been a little hectic, but it's good work, so it keeps us going. No doubt, man. So first off, you know, for the people that aren't from San Diego or maybe not familiar with uh, Chicano history, give us a little brief rundown. You know, what is Chicano Park? Uh, how did it come to be? And what's the significance that it holds to uh, people of Barrio Logan, Logan Heights, and uh, Chicanos, you know, more broadly in this country? So Chicano Park, it's a product of the consistent discrimination this community has faced. You know, so we look at this community, it was thriving. We had black, brown, Asian, some Italian in this neighborhood. And because of that, it made it the perfect dumping zone for the city of San Diego, the state of California. So we see the destruction of thousands of uh, residents and the uplifting of them through a mid-domain with the freeway, Interstate 5, dissected our community. And then we see the Coronado Bridge that comes in around like 1969, again, dissecting the community. So this neighborhood lost thousands of residents. And also, we see an influx of junkyards in our community. And then we start seeing this push for a park. You know, like, hey, you know what? You're destroying the community. You've taken away access to the bay, you know, because during World War II, the, the port decided to make it a strategic military port. So we lost access to the bay when we used to have complete access like Coronado does. So with all these factors going on, the community saying, you know what, we want our park. And of course, on April 22nd, 1970, the Brown Beret by the name of Mario Solis, he's walking down Logan Avenue, headed to uh, San Diego City College, notices the bulldozers. Asked them, like, hey, what are you guys making? You guys making the park? And they said, no, we're going to make a highway patrol substation here. So when that happened, you know, one of our elders, he always says it best, Regal, he says, you know, back then, she's going to travel a lot faster than a text message. So before you knew it, there were 300 people down here, activists, grandmothers, mothers, kids, residents, everybody, and not just from Logan Heights, but all throughout San Diego. You know, Regal rode his bike down here during one of the days. It was a mission of Eisen China Seasonal. But he came down one of those days during the takeover too. And with that, we see the 12-day occupation. 
that led to the birth of Chicano Park, you know, and then I always like to highlight too in that year, it's important to note that was one of three major takeovers. You know, we see the takeover at Chicano Park, down the street was a neighborhood house before that was taken over, became the Chicano Free Clinic, and then in turn turned into the uh, Logan Heights Family Health Center, which unfortunately now is one of the ones responsible for buying up a lot of the properties in this community, destroying them and making parking lots. And then later on we see the takeover of the Ford Building, which led to the creation of the Centro Cultural de la Raza. So Chicano Park is the hub of our activism here in San Diego. It's the, we call it the, the jewel of Aslan. And you know, it's coming up on 53 years now. So Chicano Park is a big part of San Diego's history, you know, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, and a beautiful history. You know, I, one of my favorite stories about that takeover is like hearing about the students that mobilized. Because I, I heard that like a whole classroom of students from from uh, City College came over and participated in the in the in the, in the takeover as well. And you know, that's a, a beautiful history. That kind of takes us to this more modern era, right? 45 years kind of pass. And I guess I wanted to ask, what's the motivation? Uh, behind the museum, right? Like, what what was the motivating factor to be like? Okay, well now, you know, we have this amazing park with all this history, with all this like this beautiful stories. Uh, what was the driving force, but behind uh, the the desire for a, a museum commemorating the park uh, here in the community? So for the museum, this project has been a couple of years in the making. I know it's about I think it's like six or seven years. But even before, like the museum, it's this building where it's been this point of contention. So the building that we're in right now, doing the podcast, like. This was where the highway patrol station was going to be. And then in turn, once that building, once they get kicked out, taken over by the community, becomes the office of the Chicano Park Steering Committee and then the Chicano Federation. And then we get the attacks that come in from the county, the grand jury investigation, which leads to the eviction of the Chicano Federation. The steering committee takes over the building regardless, maintains it for a little bit. And then the negotiations start with uh, Jose Gomez and Josie Talamantes, where they negotiate to bring in the San Diego Continuing Education. And in those negotiations, it was understood that the school would be in this building until they got their new facility. And when the new facility came in, the building would come back into the hands of the community. So it's thinking of that promise of like this building should come back. Of course, this takes about 30 years for the school to be built. And once that is built, then the building is just vacated and empty. And it was empty for a couple of years and that's where this push starts coming where we like, you know what, we need to utilize this building. It was promised to come back to the community, but what, what can we do with it? What can we make out of it? You know, and I know when it, the idea of a museo has been kicked around before. I know like uh, Kessel has had like the Museo del Pueblo, that concept before. And the idea is that we need an opportunity to be able to tell our history with our voice. And it's that same concept of Chicano Park and it's that same concept of the Centro. like, you know what, rather than us begging for a space, you know, rather for us being, hey, can the San Diego History Museum please give us a good section? Or hey, you know what, maybe can we get a little page in the book? It's like, nah, you know what, we're gonna have our own museo in the barrio right here, right in the park, so people can come and learn this history firsthand. Because more often than not, I mean, students know, we all know that our history gets perverted, it gets whitewashed, and it gets whittled down, and they don't want us to know the true power that our community has had over the years. So when you start looking in your history and seeing these victories against the state of California, the city of San Diego, the federal government, you know, that's when you start seeing these birth of this activism, so they don't want that. So we're like, you know what? We need to cultivate that. And we say it's Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center, because we don't want people to believe that we're history now. You know, the movimiento is done, the movimiento stopped. The people always want to say the Chicano movement from 1969 to 1974, whatever it may be, it's like, nah, we're still ongoing, where have you been? 
You know, where have you been involved in your pieces? Because this has been an ongoing struggle since the birth of the Movimiento, or since colonization begins 500 plus years ago, and we're still going. So the museum is an opportunity for us to be able to share those, the history of those struggles, to be able to come in and have that space where people could come and learn, you know, especially with a lot of our uh, partners, like in the schools in the community, like Burbank, um, Monarch, we want to start bringing in some of the colleges like San Diego City College, uh, USD, UCSD, other institutions and just smaller political organizations or community organizations. We've also offered tours to them. So it's just a resource for the neighborhood and it's us ongoing. We're trying to work on capturing a lot of that history. So that's the concept is that like we need to tell our story with our voice and through the people. You know, in the cultural center is we need to keep reminding people too that there's work to be done and that's where these workshops come in that we have, platicas and you know, different programs that we service out of this building too. Oh yeah, and I love the focus, like specifically on youth, especially like in, this, in these spaces. I could talk a whole other interview, I'm sure, about like the different references, but even just the image for Chicano Park Day this year, which I know I saw on social media, like an unboxing oh, yeah. of like the images, right? It's like a very powerful image of youth, like on the cover, right? Like in taking like almost like the torch and moving it forward, right? Like it, I you know, appreciate your answer because it, I think vibes very much with like the aesthetic that like I see very, very often coming out of this space. Yeah, the youth are like, that's really the focus. Like for, right, for us, last year, 52nd anniversary of Chicano Park Day, we didn't have an in-person event, but we had a, a fire ceremony here, which I believe it was one of the first on this side of the border where we broke the old Oyas, we put out the old fire and started the new fire and that new fire symbolizes one, the end of our 52 year cycle as a Chicano community. So we had our brothers and sisters from the Centro, we had brothers and sisters representing Chicano Studies and Chicano Park and all three of those organizations. We just finished up 52 years. So with that, it's ending that old fire and starting it anew so we can carry on these traditions for the next 52 years. And with that, the kids led that ceremony. The kids were the ones, they were leading it and Mexicayo facilitated it all for us. And with that spirit, we've been really looking like how do we engage the youth? How do we get them to be excited about what we're doing and, and learn from the elders that are here, get that knowledge soaked up so they can continue that, that fire, that movimiento for the next 52. And it's really been unfortunate because a lot of our gente, we're getting pulled left, we're getting pulled right. And you know, we want to point to other people and blame other people. But then the question becomes, what are we actually doing to get involved with them? What are we actually doing to help give them another opportunity? to just you know, go somewhere on the weekend or to come learn something or to have complete access to a space and have a safe space. So with the museum and with the park and with these other you know, partners that we've been working with, we're really trying to bring the youth to the forefront and give them that power of self-determination because the takeovers are all mentioned. There's a lot of youth involved with those, you know, a lot of yeah. high school kids, young college kids, and they're the ones that made all this stuff happen. I mean, you look at the Denver Youth Conference that happened, like the Plan de Aslan and the Plan de Santa Barbara in 69, those are all youth. And like, yeah. it's always been youth at the forefront. And it's reminding them they have that power, you know? Because I feel like they get in school and all that, and they're used to just being told what to do. Exactly. And he's like, nah, homie, you, you say what you want to do, you know? Like, you say what you want to do and, and make it happen, you know? Regardless of the, the situation. Oh, we love to see it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So as you noted, you know, like, there is a 50-plus year history of, Chicano, of revolutionary action at Chicano Park. And it's something that is commonly underplayed, whether it's from the city all the way up to the state. You know, this is history that is just, it's not celebrated the way it should be, really, outside of the community. Prior to the creation of the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center, what was the primary way that the public was able to access history and documentation about the history of the park? Because, you know, for a majority of the park's existence, there hasn't been a facility dedicated to it until this past year. Mm -hmm. You know, 
A lot of it is thankfully is a lot of the community elders have been doing their part, you know, like Gessel. I know Kessel's one that will, like you go to his space, he'll open up everything for you and give you the whole rundown of all the history and share that history and give you the tours. Us as the steering committee, we've been providing tours, you know, like thank you to like Alberto Pulido, Tomasa Camarillo, and all the other volunteers, Rigoberto Reyes, those that have taken the time to meet these groups that come to the park. And we, we do our tours, like they're sliding scale. Sometimes it's, we get paid with compliments, sometimes people can make a monetary donation. But for us, the most important thing is getting that history out there. And another person too that was really big on, you know, preserving the history and sharing it was Tommy. You know, Tommy Camarillo, she's our chair por vida. She's been the chairperson for the last almost 40 years. And she also has been a founding member of Chicano Park. She is somebody that has taken and dedicated her life for 52 years of saving everything Chicano Movimiento related and Chicano Park related. And she used to have all of the documents in her house. You know, like she had them there where people can come and they'd be able to visit and just start digging. You know, whether it was a research students, whether it was a high school student who just had questions on something, she'd pull out all these binders on them and just show them everything. She'd even bring binders to the tours. So like someone was on the tour and you get Tommy as your tour guide, she'd bust out the binder and say, no, I'm not lying to you. Like this is the proof right here that we have, you know. And that's thanks to like our elders, you know, because they're the ones that had that foresight of, we need to document, we need to start saving these things so then the next generations can start learning. Because sometimes the stories that we share too, it kind of sounds wild, right? Like, oh yeah, no, they kicked the highway patrol station out and you're like, what? Nah, it's crazy. But when you see the documentation of it, or even just you can see the park itself, like you start really seeing like, no, it's possible, you know? And that's where it's really exciting is like having those records. But the main way would be like the tours and our elders, you know, and oral history as always, you know, oral tradition that has saved us 500 plus years from maintaining our songs, our history, our cultura. Yep, precisely. Yeah, it's a big part of the Chicanismo story, right, is like oral tradition, because obviously, whether it was the Spanish or in the, yeah. the, the American experience, if you want to call it that, where our narratives are like, you know, obviously downplayed or completely omitted, having the oral tradition has been incredibly important, as well as having the infrastructure, like what you're building here. So that's amazing. Thank you for commenting on the oral tradition. I yeah. thought that's like very well, cool. That just too, even like Danzantes, like the songs that they sing that are from like 500 years ago. I mean, like that's that's a beautiful thing to know. Like the, those people who are singing those songs kept that going. They kept it going no matter what. They kept it going under the beatings and the killings and they kept it going. So we, as Chicanos, have access to that. Like it's a beautiful thing. So, I mean, you kind of talked about this already, I think, because there was obviously the school, once the school vacated, I think it was in 2015 that you mentioned, there was, you know, this conversation, a long-standing conversation with the city about what was going to happen. Is there anything else that, about like that conversation that you want to share, like, what did, in your opinion, did the city come, I think, very eagerly to, like, offer up this space to, to, to the Chicago Park Steering Committee, or was it kind of a conversation, did it, did it take a little bit of prompting? Because uh, they offered that as, like, the agreement, right, that once the school vacated, um, was it an easy process, or what, did it take, like, a little bit of prompting? Oh, there? no, it was a struggle like anything else, you know, and with the city, I always like to joke around and say that they suffer from amnesia, because, <laughs> you know, more yeah. often than not, they forget their promises they make to the community, and, you know, with this in particular, like, I always have to give my respects to, like, Josie Talamantes and the original board that predates me, like, they were really pushing at city council, and we as community to come out and support, too, and that was a beautiful thing, is that, like, no matter what, they knew that there'd be a full house when you're talking about Chicano Park Museum or Chicano Park itself. Like the city, we'd come up to city council and say like, no, we want this, we want this. And we'd push and push and push. And you know, Josie especially, she'd go to every single subcommittee and everything it may be so that we can make sure that this became the museum. And it's beautiful because like our initial like startup money when we finally did get the building, it came from people. Like it wasn't, 
a big grant. It wasn't a non another nonprofit kicking in money. It was us at like La, the La Vuelta Summer Festival or any other event like, hey, you know, it's the Chicago Park Museum. Can you donate a dollar? You donate $50, $10, $500. Some people gave more, some people gave less, some people gave time and helped volunteer. But with all of that, we're able to accumulate enough to just start off programming, you know? And yeah. when we get inside, we're able to have something to start off, you know? It was really, really beautiful thing. But it wasn't easy to get to. Yeah, it was years, yeah. It was years and years. But it's like anything else, like I always tell the youth that like, the most important thing we have is time. You know, we may not have money, but we got time, we got plenty of it. Yeah, and definitely a lot of grit, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and that's, sure. you see in the elders, you know, I always say, like, I can't complain about being tired. You know, they're going 52 years plus right now, like, working in this, and say, like, well, if I complain, what am I saying about, you know, them? You know, like, I got to keep it up with them. <laughs> like, man. So as you uh, stated earlier, the history of this very building that we're currently sitting in, it's changed hands through various entities over the past several decades. How long had the Chicago Parks been trying to acquire the space for like a museum? Like, when did it kind of click that like a actual space is needed to not just house but also um, facilitate the history of the park to people that not just in the community but people that come from all over the country and sometimes the world to come see Chicano Park? You know, for those conversations, I don't know the exact time frame. It's been a couple of years, I know for sure. I know maybe like. 2016, 2015, the original board started, but they've been going for a while, you know, because my, my grandmother Tommy, she was there on the original board and the inklings of all of this, you know, and then also like uh, Delia Talamantes and a couple of others that, you know, forgive me for forgetting their names, but they were there in the beginning stages. So I'm not too sure on how long they've been kicking the idea around. I came in more so towards the final, like towards the final push. So like for me, I came in because I worked with the former assembly member come in and give letters of support. I come in and support at the different events at the park. I'd volunteer with the museum and help get people to sign up. And, you know, and I know for me, I was in there for at least like two years, three years before we even got to the building. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. But it's been a, it's been an idea, you know, and even goes back, like I said, with Gesso, like he's had his own idea of his museum. And I know he has all his stuff on display in his space down here at the Mercado. He has a lot of his stuff there, which is really nice too. A whole master plan of the neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> no, Gesso, man, he's, he's a visionary for sure. And you had kind of mentioned the history of this park is rooted in like a militant and nonviolent, but militant land takeover, spearheaded by youth, but also just community members, went over 12 days. I mean, as the conversation started opening up again around this, this building and the space, do you think that like militant history like kind of helped you in conversations with the city of like knowing not only that you could mobilize people, but that like the community was willing to to go even through outside of just conventional means to get to get what they need, right? In this case, before it was a park. Uh, do you think that that kind of power from from basically the history of a militant takeover for the foundations of the Chicago Park did that help you in your negotiations with the city this time around? It, it helps, and then it hinders too. You know, and it's to be expected because, like for us, it's like I always say, it's like these backhanded things that we get. So, for instance, the restrooms, like the restrooms. We've been pushing and pushing and pushing for us to get the restrooms. And what do they do? They keep the old plumbing, which was the issue of the old bathroom, and then they put a new million dollar bathroom on top. So the old, we're still having issues to this day with the plumbing, but now we look at the restroom, you see a nice shiny little million dollar, uh, what do you call it, comfort station on top. But the issue is the plumbing, and I feel like these things are done to our community because of that history of the militancy, because of that history of pushing back on the city. You know, even like, Trash cans taking three years to get trash cans installed in the park. Like it's ridiculous. And even if you look at the grass outside, like we we barely have grass, and we're at the same 
stature as far as the city and the state and the federal government's eyes as a Balboa Park. So even being considered a National Historic Landmark, we're still not getting that same treatment here and I believe it all ties back to that. You know, and it helps in some ways too because like with Caltrans, because there's that established history of pushing back, of, you know, fighting, there's this understanding of like, hey, you know what, like, we should go check in with them before we do this project. You know, we should go ask, like, what's going on. And it's all thanks to people that come before me, you know, like those elders, like they, the way that they fought and they pushed and the people before, even that aren't even elders yet, but they're getting up there, like they're the ones that like laid that foundation down and allow us to have somewhat easier negotiations. But in the same breath, it's just, we have to be on top of them because we know that like if they can cut corners on anything in our area, they will, you know, they will. Yeah, you know, it's really incredible the kind of stuff they try to pull because you go across the bridge to Coronado, you don't see that shit. You go to Point Loma, La Jolla, they're not treating you know, those areas like that. But over here, like you said, they're trying to cut corners. They're trying to, you know, do everything they, every underhanded move they can to, you know. Yeah, and I crack over Coronado because you know what? Like, I always think like, you know, we have all the pollution in our end and they have the nice beachfront. But they, in their mind, they think that the water has a border where the pollution stops on one side and not on their side. So I'm seeing these kids like splashing each other in the face and they're eating the fish to come out the bay. And I'm like, homie, don't do that. Like that water is still contaminated from NASCO, the Port of San Diego and all those other uh, institutions down there. Like, and you're still playing in that polluted water. So enjoy the access, you know, like, man. Right. <laughs> just, like, just like us, chemicals, you know, do yeah. not abide by any border. Yeah, no, no it's like, it doesn't, there's no buffer or nothing. It's like, I tripped out because even the other night I ran to uh, Chicano Park at the Bay and I'm standing on the pier and like, the straight shot's nice if you look straight. And you look to your left, you see all these ships, you look to your right, you see all these ships and it's just crazy, you know, but it's, it's disrespectful to us, like that whole concept of like, they smooth transitioning into Coronado and then us, we're like directly under this bridge. You know, and we're learning, like, Josie shared with me that like, that wasn't even the original plan for the bridge. Like the bridge would have been more in East Village, so it's connected more with downtown, but they're just like, yeah, it's okay, split up the community more. You know, like go ahead and just put it down there. Exactly, man, you know, just build right there, you know. It's, it's, a, his, it's a history that goes all the way back to the founding of this nation, you know, just whatever we can do to displace black and brown folk, you know? Yeah, and I trip out, because like, Logan Heights was huge. You know, Logan Heights went to like East Village, it went to Sherman, it was all the way up to Shelltown. And then now that we have the freeway coming in and the bridge, and then we start seeing these dissections of the neighborhoods, now the vadios split up, and now the vadios are beefing with each other, even though at one point, it was all one piece. You know, and that's the crazy part, and that comes from the system making these plays in hand and dividing everybody, that divide and conquer, you know? It's crazy to see, like, what a bridge and a freeway can really do to a community. Absolutely. On top of the pollution, on top of the, like, high asthma rates we suffer from and everything, you know? And it's all done by design. Like, this stuff, it didn't just happen. It didn't yeah. just happen by accident, you know? People and systems in place designed it to work this way. No, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. They had board meetings, they had meetings, exactly. they had like, committees that like debated and discussed and... Oh, yeah, yeah. and skipping public input, you know, you mm -hmm. don't need it at mm -hmm. that time, you know, that's all right, we'll just do it, they're not going to say nothing, they don't know any better. So, you know, kind of moving into like the uh, the nuts and bolts of the museum itself, as you, as you pointed out, it's been a long time in the making, getting this, everything to come together for this museum, and it doesn't just happen overnight or by itself. I wanted to ask, how much did it ultimately cost to renovate this building and to make it into a museum that has climate control, that has open galleries, and 
you know, just retrofit this decades old building that was, you know, for lack of a better term, almost dilapidated by the time you guys got your hands on it. Yeah, it's definitely a couple hundred thousand dollars. And the good thing is, again, it comes from pushing on the city because you know what, like, why are we going to be paying rent and inheriting this building that has all these damages to it? You know, because it was vacated for a couple years. So with that, even more and more damage started increasing, especially when our houseless brothers and sisters see an opportunity to stay somewhere for a while. They're going to come inside and do their thing, you know, and it's to be expected. So with that, we really had to push. And like the council member at the time, it was, I think it was David. David, he helped us secure funds to help with the roof repairs that we needed. And then it's also pushing and renovating for some of the like construction inside of the building. So like removing, like this was a school. So a lot of the classrooms had to get cut out, take out some of those walls. We have the gallery space. We have other places, you know, opened up. Like even in the kitchen here, we're utilizing how we have the other room now. It was a lot of money to be able to do all that pieces. And thankfully it's that pushing of like, you know, we're not gonna take this building until it's at a good quality, you know. But unfortunately it's still ongoing issues that we have, you know, one of which is like the plumbing, you know, like for us, the plumbing here, like when we got the building, they were like, oh, everything's good, you're good to go. And now all of a sudden we see all this backing up happening. And with the backing up, like during the actual grand opening of the museum, we had to get porta potties. Like to think that we had to get porta potties for the grand opening of a museo here in the community, like that's ridiculous. Like the city should have had been on top of those things, but again, it ties back to this lack of respect to our community, you know? So it's like this consistent pushing and pushing. Even like, man, like to, for us to get the plumbing even a little bit cleaned up, I had to go dig a hole in the back. It was like six feet deep, dude. Like, I had to dig this hole because if not, then what, we're gonna be waiting on the city forever to do it. And thankfully we had a brother, Jose, that like, he does plumbing work and he came in and helped us. Like, and he helped us and get it all done. But like, the thing was digging those holes and all that. And like, we had to figure it out and we will make it work, you know? And we will figure it out so we can keep going. We're not gonna use it as an excuse, but it is a disrespect and it is a lot of money that had to go into this building to get it to where we're at now. And we're still, working on repairs, we still want to change the facade of things, but it's pretty, it's really expensive, man. Yeah, you think doubt. San Diego would learn too after all the issues it's had with like, I don't know, HEP A with, with, was like, what, less than 10 years ago? Yeah. And not only that, like you mentioned the respect, it's like, what is with the city like doing all this weird stuff when it comes to like hygiene, like trash cans, restroom access, plumbing, like you're, yeah. t you're talking about very basic fundamental human rights and like, yeah, the disrespect, it just hits on so many levels. Oh yeah, and for, it always takes death. For them to do anything, I remember like Faulkner too, like with the, the hepatitis outbreak, he didn't he didn't care until a whole bunch of people started dying. Then all of a sudden, we see these little hand washing stations yeah. popping up everywhere, right. and it's like, oh, that's what it takes, man. For yeah. real? Like, literally people dying. Yeah, it's ridiculous, you know. And that didn't even solve the problem of people like taking shits on the street, right? It yeah. just like it literally just like, well, I guess we'll give them a place to wash their hands afterwards yeah, we'll, instead we'll of having public or we'll arrest them <laughs> yeah. versus giving them a place to you know have housing or have you know a, rec a restroom. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, man. <laughs> you know we can talk about that all day I'm sure <laughs> yeah so for the people like um, people that aren't familiar and people maybe outside San Diego uh, you guys have been open for less than six months in October of 2022 is when the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center officially opened its doors to the public I want to ask you for you personally what purpose do you see the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center fulfilling for the community and for people who come to visit Chicano Park I think it should be viewed as like a visitor center, you know, for the, the park. Like when people come into the park, you see the beautiful murals outside. And if you don't have like a scheduled tour or something, you're kind of just, you're not really taking in what it really represents and what it means. You know, you see Zapata there and you're like, who is this guy? Like, what does he represent? Or why is it so critical that he's here? You know, and like even things from the kiosko, like the kiosko is the biggest thing where like people come and they don't understand it's not a stage. It's not a nice place to jump off your skateboard or bike or have like a music video. It, it's something that is sacred to us. And be able to have this museum and as a visiting center where people can come in and be like, hey, what is that? 
for a place where even us as a steering committee now we have our office space in here so now once again we're back inside so people know like oh I have a question about why is this here or how can I get involved they can come to the steering committee office and get checked in with that or if they just want to learn some of the history they could come right inside and you know and ask questions and learn see the gallery and the exhibit or some of the historical documents we have blown up you know it's really like a resource in terms of people being able to learn about their community about wanting to get involved and there's other initiatives that we're doing within the museum to work outside. So one of them is like Chicano Park Vive, you know, like in big thanks to like Valerie, Alberto, B, the steering committee, uh, Turning Wheel, uh, the Museo and others that like help put this together. It's where we would work outside and have like diff like a scholarship for the kids. We'd have, you know, different uh, platicas that people could come and learn and talk and have different performances too. So people can come and enjoy the day in the park. But it's also a chance to give back and people to see that we're, we're so active and it's that cultural piece again, that it's not just this history, it's not just this, oh, we're talking about what happened, it's like, what's going to happen, what happened, and what can we keep doing, and the ongoing struggles are still going. <clears throat> so it's really just engaging more and more with people, and then also we have, uh, we had our lunch program that I know that you've talked about before, our lunch program that we did in, uh, during the pandemic. You know, it's, it's seen the transition of, uh, I guess, uh, leadership, you know, because I used to run it. It gets, it's a lot of work and then thankful for the brother Juan Cotto and Brenda Cruz they ran it and now it's our brother Juan Carlos, you know, and he's doing it, you know, in partnership. So it's steering committee, Chicano Mexicano Prison Project in Unión del Barrio and even now the Brown Bray National Organization is coming in too to help with that. So it's great to see these collaborative efforts, but it's the food distribution we do, build the sandwiches in here and give them out in the park. You know, so it's these other pieces too where like community breakfasts we have here. We also had a community night for the opening of the museum. So we want people to really feel like when you come to the park that this is a place of community and you can come into this building and learn about the history, connect with people, and also get involved. You know, get involved and connect with people that are still doing work in the neighborhood. You know, so it, the, the hardest part right now is kind of like keep building those programs out. And then it's that, that tight walk to that, that uh, tightrope walk, you know, because it's a nonprofit. And with a nonprofit, you see nonprofits become more focused on grants rather than anything else. And that's the good thing about the board that we have and the community input that we ask for, because we don't want to be that. You know, right now we're really focusing on like our, our missions of like giving back to the community, grassroots organizing, highlighting the park and not changing it for anything regardless of ground or whatever it may be. So we're really working on those pieces. And one of the bigger initiatives that's being worked on right now too is, is uh, it's called La Vuelta Verde. That's where they coined it, but it's creating an electric shuttle that would help, one, create an ease for transportation, free transportation for like seniors in the community, kids, anybody. So there'll be different drop-off points. We're still taking in community input so we can figure out those stops. But two, it's a greater way of connecting all of Logan Heights once again. So the idea would be that the shuttle would go down to Shelltown. It would go up to uh, like by Sherman and then come around into the areas where people would need like grocery stores or uh, laundromats. So it's really cool to see like these initiatives that we're trying to you know, work and get grants to help, but it all goes back to the community, you know, and we want to make sure that the museum, that is our purpose, is a service to the community while educating on it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, man, because I like how you, you underscore that, like, yes, this space is dedicated to documenting the history, but it's not just history, it's a living history. It's a culture, it's a vibrant community that's still around and thriving. Yeah, and I, I feel like, you know, just to speak honestly, like it's it's that's where it's really hard. Is like we want to make sure people feel welcome, and even from the community. And there's people from the community that still haven't came in yet because I think it's that word museum, and you hear museum and you see this and you think it's like this. I'm not welcome there, you know, or like I don't want to be in there because it's like this. Uh, like 
it's been projected to us as like this uppity place, you know what I mean? It's a little bit bougie or something. Yeah, like you go to Balboa Park and you're like, eh, fuck all these museums. Like, I don't want to go in there and like have to dress up and do this and that to enjoy it. But I think that's where we're really trying to let people know like, nah, this is a Chicano Park Museum, you know, like, and it's a Chicano Museo. And it's like for us, we're not, fo we, we're a museum and we plan to be at like that standard for our documentation and our standard for our displays and everything. Because of course we should, because Chicanos can be at that standard too, you know. We want to make sure that people feel comfortable here and know that this is their space, you know, and know that if you're a community, come on in, man. Like, we're not, we're not tripping on anything. Like, we're not trying to get money off of you or nothing. Like, we want people to feel welcome in here and learn and also document your story. There's a lot of people in this community that, I mean, this community is tight-knit. Like, somebody is related to somebody who was here, you know, and to be able to get those histories down and start capturing it, like, that's what we really want to do, too, and encourage people. Like, you know, people come up, and it's great. They're like, oh, man, I got pictures of when... You know, my house was right here. Cool, let's scan it. Let's scan it. Let's make sure it's credited to you and then thank you for donating it. And then we'll give you the originals like, so we can just have a scan of it. You know, like we're really trying to work on, on bridging that gap. You know, and like anything, it takes work. But we're, we're, that's what we're really committed to is making sure our gente out here feel that welcoming. You know, because there is that disconnect. You know, and we're really trying to just bridge it together. You know, speaking about, you know, documenting the history and bridging, you touched on this a little bit earlier in the, in the interview, but I wanted to kind of touch upon it again. You know, since the park's founding, you know, uh, Tommy Camarillo, who, who was your grandmother, yeah. you know, <laughs> meticulously mm -hmm. documented every aspect related to Chicano Park. She maintained extensive collection of records, documents, photographs, items related to the park's history, which are now all housed here at the museum, you know, along with like oral histories from neighborhood residents as well. And I wanted to ask you, how did you go about organizing all of this into like an organized collection and exhibits to be displayed at the museum? Because there's 50 plus years and, you know, thousands of different items, documents and memorabilia. How do you, how do you whittle that down into something that's palatable and accessible to people? Man, that's the hard part, you know, like I do want to share about uh, Tommy's struggle and then I'll get into some of the, the what we've been working on. But with Tommy, I always call it a like, Tommy, you know, and like, when you say my grandmother, I always crack up because like in meetings and everything, my grandma always made it clear, like, I'm not your grandma right now. You know, like I'm the chairperson of the Chicano Park Steering Committee and she'll go, she'll get at any of us, her kids, me, whoever, and like she'll just talk to us like any other member, you know, and then in the car ride home, we're all just sitting there like, dang, Ali, thought you going a little hard on me. You know, like, <laughs> but that's the, the beauty of the, the park, right? Because we always want to make sure that like, even though there's a lot of families, like even us, the Sanchez families and others like that are involved, there's always that clear like separation. So I always refer to her as Tommy, you know? But like with Tommy, uh, she, you know, what brought, she was growing up, you know, she didn't have the, the privilege of finishing high school like others did, you know, because at her time, like going to school, we couldn't speak Spanish. You get hit, you speaking Spanish, a lot of racism. and. Tommy's not somebody to take it, you know, she never was someone to take that kind of uh, disrespect. So of course she'd fight, she'd fight and she'd defend her right and I feel like that's what really pulled her to the movement, you know, is like getting involved in the movimiento. And with that, you know, one of the things that I, she shared is that in those meetings, it's that same thing that I need or the city doesn't remember what they said. Oh, we didn't say it was that number. So she's like, you know what, I'm gonna start documenting everything that you guys say. So she has binders of correspondence. She has tapes and tapes and tapes of meetings. You know, she has uh, all of the, uh, you know, Chicano Park Day programs, Chicano Park Day posters. She just started saving everything you could think of. And it's, it's beautiful to see too, because she even went out, like you mentioned, like other Chicano communities. Like she has things from Denver that now we're able to work with our brothers and sisters in Denver to help, you know, share some of the stuff that we have, you know, because they should, they should have copies of those things. You know, they should have that documentation. And it's that spirit that she had of just, I want to make sure that we preserve our history 
so then you know we can share it with others and the thing with my grandmother is like she always was down to give it you know to anybody and they'd crack me up you know because like, they'd do a tour and then they'd all leave with like a 10th anniversary Chicano Park Day program you know and they're like dang that's history you're giving it out and she's like yeah the people should have this the people should have this you know and it's with that spirit that right now we've been I've been working with Tommy and we've been trying to get everything over here and it's tough because a lot of stuff's in the like it's not even everything here yet so I'm still in that process of organizing everything and right now you know I'm learning myself like I'm thankful for Annie Ross and other people in the museum that have given some guidance like a scope of work like I have to before I can even start scanning I'm supposed to get everything and then organize everything and know exactly what I have then I start going into it and start scanning everything and I'm still in that task of going through the garages because we have to go in there, see what we can salvage, what's still available to save. And then she, you know, thankfully for her, she created her own uh, formal categorization. So she has her own binders set up in like Chicago Park Day correspondence from 1970 up into 20, like 19. And then she'll have, uh, you know, newspaper articles and then she has miscellaneous, and then she has different things because she also used to work for the Chicano Federation. So she saved a lot of stuff from that too, a lot of community surveys. So it's pretty cool, there's surveys like in 1973 of like, how do you view your community? What part do you use? What would you like to see? So to be able to see perspectives on that is pretty cool. And she even went as far as saving like, she has like a KKK a membership application, you know, like things that I was like, what? Like, and it's that eye-opening piece too, because people don't realize San Diego is historically conservative, and we still are. Like we're a military town, we're conservative. David Duke used to out operate out the outskirts out here, so it's like, to see all this stuff that she had the foresight to save is crazy, you know, and it's, we crack up because, like, you know, like I said, she didn't get to finish high school, but then you get all these colleges and all these institutions trying to, like, get her to come, and she'll go and she'll talk, and she's like, why do they want to talk to me, you know? But it's that, that spirit that she had of, like, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to figure this out. It even got to a point, you know, we used to go, you know, we, I grew up in Eastside City Heights, so over there, like, there was a place that would give out old school supplies or, like, old binders and bookshelves so we'd go after school every day and it got to a point where the guy knew her name so he would call her and be like hey Tommy I have a whole bunch of binders here you want to come pick them up and we'd go because binders are expensive you know so we'd go and get the binders and then she'd say they'd call her for bookshelves hey I got some more bookshelves for you I have sleeves and we'd go and we'd go and collect these things and when computers came out she took it upon herself she took a computer class they gave her a free computer with it and she learned how to use emails computers she started even scanning some of the stuff like it's crazy you know the how much she dedicated to learning to do this the right way you know and I want to give her that respect and like give that story because people need to know like we're not like a UC uh, Santa Barbara or a UC uh, SD where there's a professional archivist that came in and did all of this like Tommy did it through self-determination and made it happen and now through the years, those institutions wanted to buy those things, buy her collection, you know, and she's like, hell no, I'm not gonna sell you my collection. I did my whole life for this, you know, like, right. no, and that's why even here, like, we're not giving it up, it's hosted here, you know, like, they, she just wants to make sure that that autonomy is there for the collection so it can move or as she would love, because again, it belongs to the people. So the goal right now is to bring everything here, categorize it, and then scan everything digitally so then those the records can be accessed for the community, you know. And even now that we're still in that process, it's that spirit of Tommy where people want to come in and if there's like something they want to learn about or study, we're doing our best to open up for them. Like, hey, you know what, come on, let's go. Like, just make sure you put on some gloves, make sure you know, like, you don't like put out any pictures because our biggest fear is like the commercialization of it. You know what I mean? And like, we don't want people to start reproducing photos or things and like selling it. 
Because that's not what it's about. Like, it's about to learn, it's about to educate our gente, and it should just be able to be accessible. So we're really like, and that's the part where we have to figure it out as a museum too, is how do we make it accessible while people don't download it? But it's a lot to go through, man. Like, it's a lot. I also wanted to ask, how do you go about um, storing a lot of this? Because, because you guys are a legit museum, so you guys have like archives that are not on exhibit, like they are in storage, you know. And some of these documents, they're very old, they're very delicate. There's things like original blueprints and drawings of the kiosco and stuff like that, you know. How do you go about um, storing these documents and, um, you know, different documents, different, different items in like a controlled environment where they're going to be preserved? Yeah, so with that, it's, we're, you know, again, one of the issues was with the city is funny, again, because, like, it's that lack of respect to even listen to what we're saying. Like, we said we're going to have an archive room, and then they, they create the HVAC system, which is great. We get the HVAC system, so we have temperature control, which is needed for archives. But the unit is supposed to be outside of the actual archive, so our unit is inside of the archive room. So it, it doesn't necessarily mess with the temperature, but what you're in there trying to work, you just hear this consistent bzz, 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 all day so it kind of drives you crazy but for the preservation pieces we have that temperature control right now we are working on getting like acid-free paper acid-free uh, uh, folders and then uh, you know with the uh, newspapers you need specific acid-free folders because they're supposed to be laid out flat you know even like um, like posters they should be laid out flat and then it's getting those those desks that are like you can pull out and have them flattened already like and that's just expensive man like I started looking at the prices so we can start like transferring everything because right now everything is just in the original condition. So everything is in the binders that Tommy put them in, everything is in the folders that Tommy put them in. And some of the stuff is just in a box where we have to go in there and start categorizing it and figuring out what year is what. But it's a pretty daunting task, you know. But with that, like we're just lucky to have the temperature control. Our goal is to get everything out of the garage, cleaned up, and then brought here so then we can start actually transferring things into those uh, sleeves, into those files, so we can have it preserved for the next 52 years. One last question before we move on. I know you said there's, there's almost countless amount of items, but conservatively, how many items do you have here in the museum, and then how much would you guess is still in storage? Man, there's like, there's thousands of things here already, I'll say that. Like, there's a lot. Like, especially one binder, there's so much in there. We have so many tapes, like, it's it's ridiculous. And then at the house, there's probably a couple more thousand things in there. Like, from, like, leaflets to small stickers to buttons, and it's it's a lot. You know, and that's, we're not even clear with one of the garages yet, you know. Like, there's so much stuff in there, you know. And then it, and it's funny, too, because, like, for us, our specific situation is that our, our family is, like, so intertwined with stuff. Now we have to kind of figure out, is this a family picture or is this part of the history? Like, is this a family thing or what? what is it? You know, and that's that's what we have to figure out too, you know? <laughs> you said like, you know, so interconnected, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the lines blur. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff and we talked about kind of like the storage and what kind of goes into that. Uh, what's currently on display right now in the museum? Like what's, what's in the gallery and being promoted right now? Yeah, so, a lot of the, the pillars, they were done by different community organizations. So some of them, they like the central, you know, the, they had their own ideology, but they have their own archives too. So they probably pulled from their own thing. But the only one that really has our archives is the Chicano Park Steering Committee pillar. So that one, like the, some of the artwork that you see on there, those were referenced from photos from the collection itself. So like, for instance, there's an image <coughs> of the groundbreaking at Chicano Park at the Bay. And that image that's painted there was referenced from an actual photo. The actual shovel 
is in there from the groundbreaking in 1987. You know, my, my uh, godmother, Teresa, kept her shovel. You know, she was like, you know what, I'm going to take this. And they bogarted that whole, uh, that whole uh, uh, ceremony. You know, they put the CPSC flag up there. They put Chicano Park Steering Committee. And they said, no, nah, this is our celebration. This is our work. But that actual shovel is there. And then on the sides, there's two collages that we made on our pillar. There's a lot of photos mixed up in there. But a lot of the collection of Tommy's is along the, the hallways of the museum. So you'll see different things, like one of which is a uh, old chingasso, which was the newsletter that the Toronto Park Steering Committee produced, where it talks about the takeover of the building. You know, it talks about the, the fight for this building and the whole history behind it. There's another one that highlights when the Toronto Federation was kicked out of the building. You know, when that grand jury report came in. There's another piece that's the Save Our Murals uh, alert that went out to the community. So with that, that was the retrofit that was happening in about 1996 where they were going to destroy all the murals in Chicano Park. But there's a blowout, the actual call out that was like, hey, and they're like, people of Aslan, we need your support. Write to Caltrans to make sure they know not to disrespect or erase our murals. There's also even uh, the news, the, the news uh, report that went out from the Toronto Park Steering Committee on the takeover of the neighborhood house. So that news alert that went out, that's actually on display too. And there's other different photos of different people throughout Toronto Park's history, like uh, Asleka, Arturo Sain and his son Stoneboy, who just recently passed, can rest in peace. You know, they did the Zapata statue outside, and there's just a lot of different history too. David Rico Sr., you know, different images. You mentioned, you know, the pillars, right? And so I've been very fortunate to come in a couple of times and get to check them out and check out a lot of the really cool kind of stories, the community art and the kind of the, the narratives that are told on them. Can you kind of just tell us, um, I guess, what the motivation behind like the pillars of the community kind of idea was? What, is, what does it entail in general? Yeah, we they really wanted to highlight the, the different community organizations and different community institutions that have played a, a integral role in the park and the community of Logan Heights itself. You know, so for instance, like Our Lady of Guadalupe has one, you know, that's a staple within the community. And then for us, it's making sure like also community organizations like Unión de Barrio, <clears throat> they have a pillar. There's a Toronto Park Steering Committee, of course. There's the uh, Brown Berets, both chapters, uh, Brown Beret National Organization and Brown Berets de Aslan. And then there's also, uh, you know, we want to pay respects to the Danzantes. They have their own pillar, the Ballet Flacorico. So there's about 12 total. And then there's an installation that's done by Kessel. So the pillars, it represents the park. You know, you see those pillars outside, you know you're in Chicano Park. You know, you see that pillar anywhere, you think Chicano Park, Chicano Park. And we've even seen that being activated too, like in El Paso and other places where freeways are affecting their communities. It's that those pillars becoming art pieces, becoming their own you know, living things, you know, and these living histories. And for us, it's highlighting that in the gallery. So when you feel like, when you're in the gallery, it feels like you're walking through Toronto Park. You, know, you see all these pillars there, and then you see these different organizations, and you start realizing that this park and this community has such a huge history that's been so many people, you know, that have been involved over the years and have participated, whether it's for years or whether it's for months, whatever it may be, but everybody played a role, you know, and to see how a community could come together and seeing all those pillars together is a beautiful thing. But it came from wanting to make sure we highlight as many as we can. Of course, there's even people that aren't even on it, but we had to figure out ways to pay tribute too, like the CCR, you know, the Committee on Chicano Rights. Like we made sure we had a picture of a Mimbaca somewhere in there too. So it was like so much more that we got to capture, but we wanted to just make sure that on the starting point, because it's a starting point for us, that we have as much as we can get. And those pillars, we feel like it best symbolizes. And I also want to give a shout out too to uh, uh, Nico Aguilar, Nicolas Aguilar, and uh, Jasmine Garcia, they actually designed them and made them. 
Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't had a chance yet, go out and check them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta check them out. Yeah, shout out to Nico. Yeah, no, they got down. Him and Jasmine, like, powerhouse right there. They knocked it out. They, they had a short timeline, you know, because you know how we do things. Like, we want to do this. Let's do it now. And they're like, oh, man, all right, we'll make it happen. And they cranked them out, man. They cranked them out. And it's quality work, too. It wasn't nothing sloppy. It was quality. And badass they got wheels and it goes to show like what you were saying is that like our people can do it as yeah. high of a capacity as anybody you know forget the, the museums about ballpark yeah. like i mean coming in here i mean that exhibit when i went i was like that's as good as any place else you know that you're gonna find like history at you know what i'm saying yeah exactly yeah. they actually just have their artwork featured here too yeah they're still in the they're still in the gallery right now in the community gallery their art pieces are being highlighted we had a platica with them uh, i think on sunday yeah, I'm lost in the time, to be honest, man. Like, <laughs> it feels like it's been months, but it's like, we're just, this planning is crazy. <laughs> no doubt, man. So, you know, you, you, you highlighted here the importance of, of um, celebrating everyone in the community because, like, this wasn't just from the steering committee or just by one entity. It's a whole community effort, you know, by various people, individuals, and organizations as well. And I wanted to ask, you know, what purpose do you see this museum fulfilling, uh, not just for the community, but for people who travel from abroad to come here? Because this is a world-renowned location that people come. It's the largest collection of outdoor murals in the entire world. Oh, yeah. My family comes from L.A. Just like, you know, I mean, they come down here just, just to walk around the park and to engage in, you know, the Chicano culture. So, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think it's that, that hope that they take this spirit with them and then they start wanting to organize in their community. You know, like, and that's the nice part. Some people come and they just want to appreciate it, which is nice, and that's a thank you. You know, like, we've had people come from East Coast. We had people come from, I think there were some that came in from England. You know, we have a lot of international visitors for the park itself, which in turn brings them to the museum. But we really want to just, like, when people come and they're actually excited, that's the most exciting thing, man. Like, when people are from the East Coast and they're like, oh, man, I love what you guys are doing. Like, I want to get a Chicano Park going. Or, you know what, we're working right now, like, on our community and we're trying to preserve things. We're trying to get out that historical documentation. It's like, yeah, do it. Do it. It doesn't have to be Chicano either. It could be whatever. Like, the black community should have their own museum, you know? Like, the Asian community should have their own museo. Like, everybody should be able to highlight their history with their voice, you know, and do it within their communities, you know, and that's what this rep museum represents. And when people come, we want them to see like the power of community. Because again, like we can like, people get caught up in ego a lot of times, you know, like, and we're trying to really make sure that like as a museo, like we don't do that. Like there's a lot of people that maybe someone doesn't think that this person did too much or maybe someone doesn't feel this other person should be involved in here, but it's not about none of that. Like it's about capturing everybody's history you know regardless or not and we have to and that's the responsibility we have but that's really the the importance of it because that's when you can build community because it's just like family you know you may not have someone that you agree with but at the end of the day you're still family and you got to still somehow come together at those important times you know and we're really trying to keep that message of community here and then so people come here they see that and they hopefully want to build within their neighborhoods and their communities you know start their documentation process start capturing oral histories start painting murals yeah. You know, and when we tell people about the park, like, yeah, you know, you can ask permission if they tell you, no, well, just do it. Do it. Like, what are you doing this negative? If it's something negative, yeah, you know, come on, don't do it. But if it's yeah. something positive, it's like, yeah, like a mural, beautification, like even the brothers and sisters with the, the Spring Valley uh, cleanup, like, man, they're badass. Like, they came to one of the cleanups, they did it with the youth brigade, and they're like, you know what, Psh, we're going to do this too. And they started just beautifying different areas. They, they don't ask. They just do it. And that's that power that we want to keep spreading out there, you know, because people have that power and we just have to organize with each other and be able to build that. And with the Museo, we hope when people come and get a glimpse of it, 
they start seeing too that like we're not so different. You know, like a lot of our communities when I travel throughout Aslan and I check out our brothers and sister parks and territories, unfortunately it's the same things. You know, like in El Paso, it's the, Tex the Texas Department of Transportation, you know, and this freeway and the destruction of their neighborhood. And then there's an encroaching stadium in their community. In Phoenix, there's a, an airport, you know, and they're like, it's these developments that are coming up and then they're trying to kick the people out. And it's always these older, like, neighborhoods, like the Mexicano neighborhoods, the black neighborhoods. And it's like, well, what are we going to do about it now? You know, these issues are consistent, so we got to just start organizing around it and doing it. And with the Museo, when people come, and they learn about this, that's what we really hope is like through these tours and through these educations, they're able to go and organize around it. Precisely. Yeah. Who it's, was it? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, who was it? It was like Malcolm X that said that we're not outnumbered, we're outorganized, right? Yeah. That like, it's not like uh, we create all the labor, we, we create all the wealth of the society. It's not that we're not powerful people, right? It's that we don't have a knowledge of our power yet, I think. And these places, these institutions you're talking about, yeah, they help us build. Yeah, and, and the trip out, like to do, like a lot of the work we do is around parks like around parks, like something that's free, you know, and that's the nice thing too. Parks are a free place to organize that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and with that, you know, people can come and like for us, like we work with all our sister parks and it's building that, that front together. Yeah. You know, and people can, and we want people to come in. And again, like you said, like, all right, cool. Let's keep in touch. Yeah. As you keep building, how can we support you? And then if you, we need support, we'll call on you too, you know, and that way we can keep going and growing and growing that consciousness, that class consciousness. Something you said, like, of course, me being an organizer, community organizer, Rob probably gets tired of me asking all these, like, overtly political questions. But here in this space, <laughs> no, of course not. But here overtly, like, there's references to, like, things like you mentioned, the Brambarais, both chapters, the BBNO and the Brambarais d'Aslan, the National Brambarais d'Aslan. Um, this is a space that does have, like, a radical and, like, revolutionary history that it, that it continues to kind of, like... Uh, I don't want to say commemorate, but it continues to like uplift, right? It's like you're talking about like the living history that exists in these spaces. I guess like you mentioned, as a you know nonprofit, right? As a as a 501c3, I presume there's all this like red tape to make it so that you know we don't get too political. Even though I would argue apathy is a political position, and indifference or ignoring our history is a political position, usually in favor of the rich, right? But yeah. I guess, what do you think your like, role or the role of this museum is when it comes to like the, the revolutionary organizations like Union that still exists to this day, continues to do work? Um, how do you, like, how are these spaces, how do they interact, I guess, with these like radical and revolutionary groups in the modern era? Yeah, I think it's like for us, like, and that's the thing too, it's funny because you say it, like, it's like, for me, uh, well, you know, I get this from Regal, you always talk about switching hats. It's like a matter of switching hats, you know, like, with the steering committee, we're not a nonprofit, so we move as we move. And then the museo, respecting to their nonprofit, is like, yeah, you know, we're gonna host their space. We're gonna be whatever we can be for those spaces, you know, for those organizations. So for us, it's like whether it's held in meeting spaces, because as you know, as an organizer, like, meeting spaces is something very, very, it's a pleasure to have, you know, it's, oh, yeah. a, it's a, what do you call it, a privilege. Exactly. You know, and like to be able to provide that to our brothers and sisters or for a place for black guys, a place where they can organize inside of here, that's what we want to do and we want to build that and also highlight those struggles and be a play, you know, a role in those things too where we can. Like what can we help as far as, you know, hosting or documenting or ensuring that like we do our network share those information now, like, you know, whether it's the May Day thing coming up with Unión on the audio, like <clears throat> how can we make sure that we're doing our part? And that's what we really want to do is focus on like either doing outreach to our people because luckily the people that come here that want to sign up for the newsletter, they're usually on board with what we're trying to do. And if not, then you know they may unsubscribe and that's all right too. But you know, we want to make sure that we're staying true to our roots, you know. And it's that the hard piece though, like you said, is that nonprofit. And I think that's where it's really beneficial that we have sister organizations where we know that, you know, they can do those pieces for us where we may not be able to fully 
jump in on, you know what I mean? And for me, it's like, it's the pleasure of having a nice hat collection. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's tough, man. It's tough. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. You gotta walk a very fine line. Yeah, it's that tight It's that tight rope, because it's like, you know, and like we were talking about earlier, like the cost. Like, there's a lot of costs associated with operating a building, you know, and then there's a lot of costs associated with like little things like insurance or like the power bill, like it's crazy, you know, and with that, it's like, that's where we know that the museum has, we're gonna play as much as we can, but we also have to respect too that the museum has to, you know, operate and function. So that's where like we still have to, that's where it's why important for us as like board members and even just community members or like supporters and partners that there is that grassroots organizing that's needed that the museum can't fulfill in necessarily. So that's where we really try our best too, you know, like to make sure that like we're organizing on the outside to support. And if there's an initiative, like we just take off the museum hat and go in as another, you know, in another way. And we've seen that too, like with the, the museum was like involved with the Mitsubishi, you know, protests that were going on. You know, they were involved in that. We got involved in that. And, you know, and again, we understand what, what comes with those things, but it's, it's like that fine line. You know, like we're going to make sure we do what we can and we're holding it down with the community. But in the same breath, making sure we keep the lights on. Oh, that's right. Because, yeah, like you said, no space to meet means much more difficult for the, for the organizing stuff that people yeah. you know, depend on. Uh, so yeah, you know, great, great. I love this space. I mean, I love these. And that's just really the importance of having a good board, and then also the youth component and developing leadership. Because, you know, as any board, there's those cycles. You know, not everybody in the board is going to be there all the time. You know, and people, unfortunately, to our elders are passing. So it's really important that we start developing this next generation, so they understand that you're needed in this position, so this can keep going the right way. That's right. Training your own replacement, yeah. basically, you know? That's mm -hmm. like, and that like helps with the ego, right? Because people, they can get a real... It's really easy, I think, for people in these spaces to kind of, like, develop, like, well, I'm needed. Like, I'm needed in this yeah. space. Without me, this doesn't run. But I think something, at least that I've picked up from, like, our conversation today, especially, is that, like, that ego doesn't really, like, resonate in this work. It's like you're all training the youth. The youth are coming out. There's, like, a, it seems like there's a current of... Um, like training your replacement, would you, would you agree with that or is that my off the base? Or, or? No, no I, would, I would say that's 100% correct because even like with the steering committee, like myself, like I'm very fortunate to be seeing the chairman, you know, and I don't take that lightly. Like I appreciate the support that people give me and that the, the trust that the elders give me, but my goal isn't to, like, I don't think I deserve to be the chairman. I don't think that I should be the chairman. I need to be here for the next 10 years. Like, I want to develop everybody so everybody can have an opportunity to lead because it shouldn't just be left on one person. You know, it should be, if it's really community, community should be trained to be able to step into that too, you know, and that's really with the youth component and like developing people. And, you know, it's also hard too because like it's a trust thing because like we got to find people that are willing and are on board because not everybody's on board. Unfortunately, a lot of the people are being Hispanicized or Latinized now, you know, and it's like trying to get people that are committed to the Chicano movimiento, the Chicano principles, and then training them to be able to step into these positions. But you're right on with that. Like, even with the Museo, like, we're really trying, like, and I think they're, we're working on a youth council, too. So it's like, how do we keep youth engagement so then people know that these positions are obtainable and we just need you to take, be open to the training, you know? Yeah. Right. yeah. Kind of moving along those same lines, like it says, serving as a springboard for the next generation to continue on this, you know, cherished legacy. What are your thoughts on the importance of preserving history? particularly Chicano history, and how does documenting history like this allow historically marginalized communities to learn from the past and use it as a reference point for contemporary organizing? I think it's just like that. It gives you that, that reminder that a power that people have, you know, 
And like for us, like an example is the lunches. Like the lunches, you know, a lot of people tell us, you learn that from the Panthers? And it's like, no, we respect the Panthers program, but ours came from Hermanita Enrique and uh, Tomasa Camarillo, who would do distributions of beans, rice, whatever, like on the kiosco. They'd lay out clothes, whatever they had, they'd just give it away. You know, and with that spirit, we're like, you know what, we gotta, we gotta start doing that, you know, and look to our history. What have we done as a community? You know, what have we given back? Just like before, like the steering committee used to give out toys too. So we started trying to partner up with like the Braves who've been doing it for years now, like seven, eight years. We're like, you know what? The first time we partnered together, is like, we gotta step up too and start helping out because the Toronto Park Steering Committee has historically done that too. So we should start getting back to the distributions where we have these events in the park. Looking at our history, you look at some of the old Toronto Park days, someone dressed up as the Easter Bunny because sometimes it would coincide, you know? And then we're like, man, we gotta get back to that too. So now we're creating our own Easter basket giveaways and our own distributions and uh, egg hunts. So we wanna keep these things going because, you know, we, it's important, you know, like when we look at this history of giving back, we want to keep those things alive so then in turn, those kids that grow up and experience these programs will think, I want to keep that going too, you know, and then preserving that history so it's visible. And, you know, and as far as like the victories, it's important to know this history because when you go into these spaces, people like to just take it as it's just that moment. But there's this whole historical memory that needs to be taken into account of how we got to this place at right now. Because it's not just, oh, we're just asking for this. No, this has been an ask for years, even like most recently with the travel lodge. You know, the travel lodge, they, they want to try and make it to a transitional housing for a houseless brothers and sisters, which yes, that's great. You know, I'm not against those programs, but historically our community has been the place where all these services have been placed and in turn we can see an up and increase of uh, houseless folks in our, in our area. And unfortunately a lot of them suffer from mental health issues. And I'm not blaming them for that, but it is causing an issue for our kids and our, and our people in the quality of life for our students walking to school. You know, our people observing these things that are happening in our community, especially with like drug use. So there was a big push when the, the transitional storage unit came into our community. It was like, hey, like we don't want this here. You don't want this. You didn't even ask us and you're just shoving it in our community when other communities should be playing their part in holding these programs too. You know, like why isn't La Jolla, why isn't Coronado being asked to hold these programs? You know, why can't they do that? I bet you some of our houses and sisters would love to look at the bay, you know, from that side. You know, why can't we have that stuff there? And the, the ask was, you know what? Okay, fine. Falconer said, all right, whatever. We'll, we're not going to do this in your community again. We're not going to do this again. We'll make sure going forward that we don't target any of those services in the community of Body Logan. And then now what do we see? A forgetting of that. And now when we're pushing back against that, what does the mayor say? Oh, it's because we have to do our part, we have to do our part, and you have to understand that we need to, and it's like, no, if you look and you know your history, we've done our part historically, we're just asking for other areas to do that. So, and that all ties back to that documentation and that history, because if we don't have those documents and those records, and you know, even people just sharing that oral history with us, then we wouldn't know that this isn't a new attack, this has been an ongoing attack over and over and over. And it's important for us to know where we're organizing from, so we know exactly how we can push and, and leverage that on them too. Like, man, historically you've done this to us. So why now? Why do we gotta keep suffering? What we see time and time again, regardless if it's the 1970s or now, is that our communities are used as dumping grounds. You know, with, and with absolutely no afterthought from the powers that be. You know, they do it because they feel like they can disrespect our communities. Like, you know, yeah. they, they, they feel like there would be no recourse, which you think would be ridiculous at this point. Oh, <laughs> you know, they still feel as emboldened. I always think it's really nice too to mention like what you're talking about with history, right? People think that history is these big moments that happen in the vacuum and these static moments that like, in 1970 this happened and then that's that and then we just move on to another period of history. 
and not as like an evolving to kind of like dialectical thing, right? Where like these periods of history are intersect interjecting with very particular conditions that like are the reason why things go the way that they do. So yeah, like you mentioned that remembering that like history is important because if not, how many of us would fall again for the old okie doke of like, oh, you know, they said that they're gonna do their best to not do this the next time. We'll just wait and believe them if we didn't have that like that living memory of like, oh no, this is this is not the first time they've they've said this. Yeah, and if we don't have that like historical memory, then it becomes like it's always been this way. Exactly. And it's like no, no, like we can go way, way, way back to the point of where we start seeing these transitions happening and you'll see like it's it's all by the system, you know, it's by design. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. As someone who is a steward of the space, what has it been like to see Chicano Park grow and become not just a national historic landmark, but a world-renowned landmark that doesn't just hold the significance for Chicanos, but people all over the world. Like you inspire people from different uh, nationalities, different backgrounds, communities, and even other countries. You know, it's a, it's a blessing, and it's, it's always exciting when it's those pieces of people appreciating it and wanting to learn and activate around it. But it's that double-edged sword, right, where it's like, it's cool and it's nice to see these, this landmark status and the cultural districts and these formation of these things, but it's, that's what's leading to this increase of gentrification. So for us, it's really hard because, like, as we're trying, like, it's, yeah, finally, we're being recognized, you know, like, do we need your recognition to feel good about ourselves? No, we don't need it. And, but now it's, like, leading to all these developments, and it's crazy, you know, like, even with art, like, Chicano art is always viewed as this like subcategory, like oh that's Chicano art, why can't that be considered fine art, why can't that be considered this other medium, it's like no, Chicano art, and you know what, we're going to create our Chicano art, now that it's being recognized, now it's this oh man, we got to go down there, we got to go down to Logan and check this out, and there was that article that came on, if you guys seen with the, this yeah. the hundred, yeah, yeah, the coolest neighbors in the world, and yeah. then we're right there on number six, and you know, I always tell people, like, I thought that was, you know, whatever, we're number one in Aslan, I'm not thinking much of it, until I see the real world implications of that. When someone comes out here and they're like, oh, we're gonna open a tequila distillery here. And it's like, well, you can't do that, that's against the community plan. And they're like, well, did you know that this is the sixth coolest neighborhood in the world? So of course I'm gonna set up here. And it's like, what? So it's really hard to be able to like fully celebrate our, our wins and that acknowledgement and the, when that's all happening to our brothers and sisters. Because like myself, I always try to like remind myself and others that we work with that like we're not like we have to look outside of our community because that word community like what is community right like how do we define community it's hard because when we say community there's like activist community there's the, the neighbor here then there's also community that's artists then there's the hipster community that they view themselves as a community and then we're forgetting about the other community that's on the outskirts yeah, we're talking about these political pieces, we're talking about Chicano consciousness and all this, and they're just worried about the nine to five job. They're worried about getting home. They're worried about just the day to day, trying to pay rent, and all of the things that we're working on over here are in turn affecting their livelihoods, you know? And it's really hard to feel like, yeah, we're a cultural district. Yeah, you know, now there's a, you know, like if La Vuelta, for instance, like La Vuelta's happening, yeah, cool. It's like, yeah, it's cool for us, but then there's other brothers and sisters that are trying to get home, and now they're stuck in traffic, and now they gotta wait another two hours to get home and they don't even care about the weather, they don't even care about what's going on at the park. They just want to focus on their lives and that's where it's really hard because like we want to celebrate these victories and it's important that we're being recognized but we, that's where these cultural pieces for the museum come in, that's where these distributions come in for us because we still have that service to our gente, whether they're on board 100% with us or not. Like we have to be consistently getting involved with them passively and passively engaging them where it's like come to a distribution, come get an Easter egg basket, huh? you know, thankful for our brothers and sisters, our Lady Guadalupe, we're going to have a Palm Sunday Mass here. 
And I know that can be viewed as contradictions, like how come a space that's working on decolonizing is going to have Palm Sunday Catholic Mass? And I said, well, because that way our gente could come and enjoy the park. You know, and maybe they'll see something that resonates with them and want to get involved. So it's like we have to have those parts of like the, the grassroots giving back so we can hopefully passively get people involved and engaged. So when there are chances to mobilize, hopefully we can get people involved because they remember that we're trying to meet them where they're at. Yeah. Um, I have a completely just impromptu question, I'm sorry. Because this is like great, because you brought up so many cool things about like, the, the kind of like, obviously our community's not a, monol like a monolith, right? Like yeah, there's a yeah. lot of different kind of people that make up yeah, like the Chicano community. And like you mentioned that like a lot of times like, ownership comes up, right? Because like these other forces, like business interests, political interests come in and, and they have their own intent, intentions of like why they're coming into a community, right? And they don't always overlap uh, with like, say for example, someone, a family who's lived in the neighborhood for decades that has like their own vision of like what, what Logan is and what they're looking for. And you know, I guess I'm, I'm just curious for you as like somebody who's been in the community a very long time that's obviously invested in it, like what, what do you think the like role of like ownership, like obviously the park I think is a space that like you mentioned, the community gets to own that, right? But a lot of people don't get to like even like own their homes, own their businesses, like these other interests come in and get, kind of dictate. Now, like you kind of mentioned for a long time, Barrio Logan was kind of like neglected for lack of a better word by the city. Uh, people created something themselves organically and now it's like, well, people want to commercialize that. Yeah. They want to like profit off of that. And there's these outside interests that are kind of now dictating what time it is, right, in a certain way. They're like, well, we'll buy up this part of the neighborhood, we're gonna put this factory over here, whatever. Do you think like the idea of ownership is important for like deciding how a community gets to look? And do you, what, I guess, what role do you think um, the museum and these other kind of cultural institutions, ones that aren't tied to like business interests per se, get to set in that kind of idea of ownership in our community? Do you think that's like a conversation that's ongoing or? I think we really gotta push ownership on our gente to start trying to own the land and own the pieces because those that own it I don't think they really care about what goes on some of them don't even hear in the community and that's where it becomes really difficult because unfortunately whether we like them or not they are a form of gatekeepers and for us it's when we talk about gatekeepers there's the community organizations there's the business renters then there's the ones that own the places so it's like how do we make sure that they're adhering to what our community desires and I think a lot of it comes from those pushes and all of us working together I guess community organization residents you know I think back a couple of years ago we had that uh, that panel here the gentrification versus gentrification where we had to pull in uh, business owners try to get property owners they didn't want to come down of course and then we had community organization it's just this dialogue is like we all have to be on the same page as those that are renting the building as those that are coming into the community and uh, trying to uh, in their eyes make it better and make sure that like we're there at those tables so we can push on them and say, you know what, like you may want to own this or maybe you own this, but you need to make sure that it's reflective of this community. And for the museum and the park, it serves as an anchor, I feel, because we're here, we're in the park, and we're not going nowhere. You know, and especially the park with that national historic landmark status, that's one of the upsides of it is that it's protected as a Chicano history, like a Chicano park. You can't change that. Like it's historically done. So now no matter what happens down that block. Chicano is here, it's not gonna go nowhere. So that allows the block to be what it is today, which is like a Chicano business, Chicano community thing. And unfortunately with that, it's that double-edged sword too, where it becomes like some are there because they are Chicanos that are in business, and some are in the business of selling Chicano. You know, and that's the hard part, is like, man, like how do we make sure we fine tune that? And a lot of it is like sitting on these, these planning groups, like the planning group, like I was dragged into the planning group, you know, like I, I respect everybody who did the work on it, you know, like Josie, uh, Mark Steele, 
Hector, Julian, EHC had been partnered in there, like a lot of people. And it's that same thing where they turn out and that is like, you know, you sit there and you're able to say no to projects, you're able to give input, you're able to give the residents perspective, you're able to push back on some of the landowners. And it's important that we have people represented because they're everybody's sister. There's, uh, there's the industry representative, there's the Navy representatives, there's the business representative, and then there's the community organizations. So for us, it's like sitting at those tables, making sure people are involved at that level, or at least go to those meetings when something's coming up in development. But it's tough, man, because like, it's really like the goal would be to own our own stuff, but it's really hard. And I know like there's uh, brothers and sisters are working really hard on a, on a community land trust here. And uh, you know, I wish I could be engaged in that. I'm just so busy with everything else that I can't. But like, they're really putting in that work and looking at how do we start owning the land itself? How do we start owning these properties so we can at least protect more pieces you know and like for us like i'm also a business owner so it's tough because we rent and you know and i'm thankful for the, the guy that we rent from because he's from the community he understands what we're trying to do so we're able to keep the the space and be able to keep you know, a lot of things free or like low price and keep engaged with people but i also understand too that these other property owners are creating a lot of this infighting for us because as a business increases their cost then people are like oh you're a sellout or you're this and you're that but they're like did you not hear that guy got his rent raised on him though man and like He's trying to survive, and then when he leaves, who's going to come in? Someone who can afford that. And then it starts changing the makeup again and again. So with ownership, it's really, it's really tough, but I'm just thankful that like, these anchors are here. So we can still push and try like with the land trust or try with the new businesses coming in, pushing on them and, and making them understand where we're at. But it's, it's this ongoing battle, man. Like, and it's just getting worse. And it's just getting worse, you know? Yeah, I appreciate the answer because that's like, I think a very real synopsis of what our communities are going through, right? Like some material conditions that some are within our control, some of them are, you know, some, some of them are like outside of our control because we don't get to control which corporations get to, like you said, try to, you know, make a profit off of Chicanismo, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I trip out, man, because like the way that these companies go, like they try to subvert everything and will go to like the council member or to the assembly member and try to get ledgers to support that way and try to skirt these other processes and it's ridiculous. It's just crazy, and then like, you know, and also too, like a lot of people, they'll do developments and they'll try to make it seem like it's for the community, but in the long term, it's because they see 10 years down the line, yeah. that it won't be the same makeup, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough, it's like, man, it's always an ongoing battle, you oh, know? Yeah. And the most important thing is just building that consciousness amongst each other, and not everyone's gonna agree, as long as people are willing to come to the table and talk and organize, and so we can at least keep a fabric of a community together, that's what's really important. I appreciate what you said about Chicano Park and the museum and the cultural center being like an anchor. And that like is like very important because you mentioned like, yeah, I mean, they can't, they, you know, whoever can go buy up the hood, like right down the street, right? But like, they can't really change the name of Chicano Park, right? Like yeah. the history has to stay that way, not only because of the, the historic landmarks, but because of the amount of infrastructure, grassroots and otherwise that exists. I thought that, you know, personally, the, the image of the anchor, like that, like, yeah. you know, of, of this space being like, oh, yeah, no, this is like rooted. The identity is now rooted to the, to the soil almost. I thought was very uh, graphic. Yeah. I appreciate it. And that's where it's really important that we keep like the history here real. The history here real and not like and to the truth. So when people come that should feel uncomfortable, do. Yeah, I know, know what you mean, yeah. They I should feel uncomfortable. The Patriot Picnic people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those like, people no. that are out here trying to, like, you know, uh, do, the, do the most for the worst causes, yeah? yeah? Like, you should not feel welcome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
I'm just gonna shamelessly plug this article because this isn't a conversation necessarily about gentrification, but if you wanna know more about the land trust, check out my article, it's on Latino Rebels that Lucas took a part in. Also shout out to Ashley Valentin Gonzalez, shout out to the Environmental Health Coalition, Sonia Lopez Chavez and everybody who uh, took part in that conversation. So check that out because you wanna hear Lucas's thoughts on that, he definitely <laughs> breaks it down to a science in that article. But yo man, so you know, with that being said, what are some of the upcoming projects in the works for 2023 with the museum, man? Anything that you want the listeners to know about or anything that's on the horizon? I think right now we're trying to just get through Chicano Park Day. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah, but there's other, they'll have some other more upcoming platicas too with the museum, like just keeping an eye out on the social media. We're going to be bringing in different artists. You know, one of the original ideas for the first exhibition was to have a show with all the artists. And that, once we looked at that, I was like, all right, that has to be three shows, like three or four shows. Or how do we break it off into decades? Because there's so many people, because, you know, unfortunately, too, with history, like, <clears throat> we're learning to go back and make sure that things are correct. You know, like some of the, the artists might say, I painted this mural, but in reality, it was a team. It was a team of people. So getting them and their perspectives, and because some of those people have gone on to do other work. So making sure everybody's incorporated. So with that, we decided at this point, let's start doing platicas so we could bring in artists, highlight them in the community gallery and give them that opportunity to speak and share their stories. You know, the first one was with uh, uh, Patricia Cruz and Herman Corrales, you know, local activists, community members, also uh, artists in the park. Then Roberto Pozos came and then now we had uh, Jasmine and Nico, so we're just working on developing more of those. We are looking at a publication that says a museo, so we're going to hopefully start documenting some of our history and putting that out so people can access that and actually have something to read and reference and learn about the history when they come to the park. So we have a lot of projects going on. I just think right now, like, it's, we're, since we're just newly opened, we're really trying to, like, find that balance of, like, okay, cultural programs, the breakfast, community breakfast for our community here, and then also we're doing the Chicano Park Eve again, and now as we're talking, we're looking at creating actual programming to get youth involved. It's like getting a master's degree in Chicano studies in like a week, you know, something like that where people come and learn from people firsthand, you know, and more importantly is continue to work with the youth and get like oral history capturing and like getting them involved in the archiving process so they can start learning that for their organizations or for their families themselves, you know. So those are some of the things we're working on and also we're going to be looking to also changing the uh, exhibit. You know, once we have more information on that, I'll let you guys know too so we can put that out to the people that will be having a new exhibit changing and rotating out probably after Chicago Park, they will be looking at that. No doubt. Okay. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what's going to be coming up. I know personally I would buy a book about, published by the Museum and Cultural Center of all just the different graphics or different kinds of stuff that I've seen uh, just, you know, even on the walls. So I'm really excited uh, for whatever all you all put out. I mean, I guess that also brings us to um, the kind of uh, closing that we usually do, which is like, where can we follow information and updates both on the museum and the cultural center, but also yourself as someone that's, you know, like you mentioned, wearing many, many hats that's out here. I would I constantly say, and I'll say it one more time, that you're like one of the hardest, if not the hardest working person I see out here in Logan, just running around, you know? So where can people like, hey, follow you as like what you're up to, but also like the work of the museum? Yeah, so if you're interested in following more about the museum, we have, uh, we're on Instagram and uh, Facebook, uh, Toronto Park Museum and Cultural Center. We also have our website at chicanoparkmuseum.com.org. We make sure we got them all. Then uh, as far as Chicano Park, if you're interested in learning more about like Chicano Park Day, the upcoming commemoration, our historical struggles, we have a chicano-park.com. 
And then we're also on uh, Instagram, Chicano Park underscore official, and we're on Facebook. It's Chicano Park Steering Committee. There's a racist ass page on there. It's I think they call themselves the Real Chicano Park. It's not us. It's some white supremacist group. They got it before we did. But they're going to the Real Chicano Park. If you can't report them too, fuck them. But <laughs> yeah, but Chicano Park official and Chicano Park Steering Committee on Facebook. And then for myself, you can follow us at our shop. We are a local like community space slash shop. And that's uh, Aslan Libre. So Aslan Libre is the one, and we're right there on Logan Avenue. If you want to come by, we, you know, we don't, we're not about like making money. We're just trying to pay the rent. That's it. You know, like we want people to come in, and be able to have those discussions. You want to come talk about Chicanismo. You want to talk about the history. We're there. Like, and that's what we're there for. We also opened up a, a gallery, and this importance of us creating these spaces for ourselves is like we opened up Galeria Mesisaje. So that's also a thing. We'll be have upcoming things, so you can check out too if you're interested. And I think that's it. I think those are all my, my little yeah. plugs. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Lucas, is there anything else that you might want our listeners to know that maybe we might have missed or anything else of importance? Uh, I'll just share that, you know, Chicano Park Day is coming up, and it's actually on the day of the takeover, April 22nd, 2023. Yeah. And with that, you know, this is a Chicano holiday. This is the day where all flags throughout our salon should be flown with pride because this is not just marking the takeover but it's also marking this continued struggle and this continued fight because it's not over you know like we're still seeing these attacks of pollution like Mitsubishi was the most recent one and they're not going anywhere either they're still there the, the plans are on pause they're not on complete halt and done it's like they're just waiting for the next opportunity to come back in newly biodiesel is still creating a stench in our community for these elders that have to inhale that all the time you know there's all these issues with industry that's still ongoing and we still haven't forgotten our missions of all the way to the bay so we still have to clear out these industries so we can have that clear bay access once again but chicano park day we want people to come out and, and come and enjoy the commemoration because we're really really big on saying commemoration not celebration and that you know is through our discussion internally you know is that we should celebrate. We should feel good about it, but we can't get lost because now we feel like people look at it like it's a party. Mm, yeah. And it's not a party. It's not this like, oh, we're going to come and get messed up on Chicano Park because it's the day to do it. It's like, nah, man, this is the day where we're able to take pride in ourselves as a people, as brothers and sisters, you know. And then, you know, one of my favorite things about Chicano Park Day is just seeing people and saying, oh, happy Chicano Park Day, happy Chicano Park Day. Like, if we made it another year, like, happy Chicano Park Day. And it's that, that spirit that we want people to be able to take when they come and visit the museum, when they come visit the park or they come on that day itself is like, get involved in your communities, get active, get engaged and start, start pushing and start doing, you know, start doing more importantly because I feel like we've been programmed to a point where we want to ask and when someone tells us no, we're like, well, we tried. We asked and they said no and it's like, nah, just do it. Just do it because when you're doing something right, it doesn't matter. If you see something that needs to be beautified in your community, do it, plant it, paint it, like whatever it is, organize around each other. You see brothers and sisters that are hungry, you don't like seeing it, feed them. You got extra clothes, give them out. Like start organizing clothes drives. Like that's how we start building this community. That's how we start building this and start building this actual class power and this this power amongst our people, you know. And like for us, like myself, the work I do is Chicano based, but we stand in solidarity with everybody. You know, like we, and that's what people should start doing is building within your community and start really doing solidarity. Like our brothers and sisters need you, go out and support. You know, go out and support. But don't go over there and try and tell them what to do. Like, they have that right to self-determination, you know, and that's really where solidarity comes in, is like, if we're going to support, make sure we support one another and give them the right to lead their, their movement. That's right. Most definitely. Mm -hmm. Lucas, thank you again for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Internets, 
Once again, Lucas Cruz of the Chicano Park Stream 80 and Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center. Thank you again for this conversation, brother. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me, man. Of Glad course. you guys caught me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I said, we'll see you on Chicano Park Day. I'm fucking super excited. And I know that, like you mentioned, it's going to be a dope commemoration and one that's going to be, a, I think, a great, you know, opportunity for us to all connect and maybe take a moment just to, you know, afterwards, maybe we'll all breathe a little easier. I think probably you'll be working real hard on the oh, day. Oh, yeah. It's going to be, a, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful, you know. It's just a beautiful day. It's a day of pride for all of us. Um, okay. I hope you guys come out. I'm excited. Oh yeah, you'll, you'll see me there for sure. Yeah. And with that said, we out. Peace. This episode of Step Off Radio is recorded at the Justice Center, San Diego, and our music was done by DJ Root. This has been a Step Off Magazine production.